Welcome to the Interns Hope Church Run the Podcast. I'm Jesse Brumfield. And I'm Isaac Little. We are two Americans living on mission in Wales. And we're uh, both inviting you guys to uh, walk with us as we talk about what it is and what it looks like to be life on mission in another country. So if you're interested in the insider's look into what it is to be a missionary, the real truth and transparency of it, and maybe some mishaps and a little bit of humor along the way, then you are in the right place. Hi, friends. Welcome back. Week five. And it's such a fun journey we can be on. So what we left off um, last, last episode was kind of like the process that it, that it took us to get here in Wales. Yeah, like the process of discernment, like calling, feeling called, and then discerning that calling. So today we are going to be continuing that series, and we're going to be focusing today on like the actual business details, admin, logistics, all of that stuff that isn't necessarily very glamorous, (laughs) but it's necessary. So, you know, once you felt the calling, once you've discerned, okay, this is what I I definitely feel God calling me to, and I'm going to move forward with this. Next is, okay, now how do I make this happen? So this episode is going to focus on that. So Isaac, tell us about how, like what steps you took okay. to get to Wales? Steps that I took, there was this huge period of, to me, what felt like it was f- a frozen time frame. There was an unknown um, gap because the, the initial thought process was, you know, six months in September and there was no word and it was uh, of... Um, if that was a yes or a no, or what's the next steps to do. So it was kind of like limbo. So it was a, just to clarify, you were thinking this was going to be a six month internship opportunity and it would start in September of 2019, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. And and, uh, and that was kind of like the, the original thought process for Ben. And um, there was a huge time gap you know from from march 2019 when i was invited to september because it was a whole so around five months had went by from me being um i i went to wales in march i should say that um 2019 and did like an interview with ben and and this and simon and the well the staff of hope church and uh, spent the night at Ben's house. And that was um, kind of talking with them of desires and where my heart was and where their heart was. Um, at the end of it, at the, in the evening time, Ben was like, well, we want you to come and be a part of Hope Church. And so um, from March to August um, was really intense for me because I was going through a process of counseling what Heartland Church has is what's called soul care. And and the whole purpose of that is to just clear the ground and ask God, is there anything that there, that needs to be worked on? Uh, any issues that you want to appoint and, um, and deal with? And then there's, you know, two people that are um, there to facilitate the space, the safe space for, um, for talking about those things and asking God, 
to change the way that we think and our behaviors and the way that we feel uh, and trade, you know, an ungodly belief for a godly belief or an ungodly thought for a godly thought or so that we can live out that righteousness and live out in right standing with God and relationship with him. So all this was coming up. Every question, you know, that I've had all the way down to self-worth was being, was being questioned and, and put up to God. And, and for me, I'd been in a period of waiting, a season of waiting for, for what I thought was way too long. <laughs> I thought that it was uh, too much, um, too much time had gone by and I was done waiting on the Lord. Doesn't it always feel like that? <laughs> Don't we always have to wait longer than we think we should? There was this period where I just felt, I felt overwhelmed because I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted and I, the time frame that I expected them. And I just had a whole bunch of swirling ungodly beliefs in my up in there in my head. And so um, we went to this retreat and still no answer. And it was like, you know, well, God, am I going to Wales? Like, I just want to know so I can move on. Like if I'm not going to Wales, I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do job wise. So I just kind of, I got confronted in front of everybody at the retreat by um, Liam. He's a friend of mine. And so he knew all the backstories. He knew all the nitty gritties because I'd shared with him. And so um, he just basically come out and asked some questions that um, made me angry because I didn't feel like he should have done that in front of everybody else. And so I wasn't necessarily mad at Liam. I was more angry at God. And then he just kind of fueled that, that rage inside of me of like, well, you know that I want to, you know, a relation, you know, so now I'm yelling at Liam. So I ended up the next, that weekend, after that weekend, I quit my job <laughs> without knowing what the next step was. It's bold. So stupid. <laughs> <Wasn't it> bold? <laughs> and, uh, oh, uh, yeah, uh, here, here I go. Why do you say it was stupid? Uh, because uh, I did, this was the thing was I was expecting God to answer me. And because he wasn't answering me, I was going somewhere. If I wasn't going to Wales, I obviously just made the, I made the commitment that I was moving on, um, at that point, you know, uh, and I didn't, I didn't get any counsel from anybody. I didn't ask the pastor, didn't ask my cousin, you know, someone who gives me great advice. You know, he's practically, he's my best friend. I just impulsively reacted because I was like, well, out of all these things, I'm at a job that's temporary and that doesn't pay a whole lot. I can go, you know, I can go somewhere else. And so that was my thought process. I need to go somewhere else. I need to move on. Um, you know, I'd been at that point, I'd been living with my, my grandparents for four years. So there was this huge, I, even though that was a place of growth, I still felt worthless because I'm like, my goodness, like I'm 28 years old and I don't have my own home. I don't have my, I don't have my act together. Basically mm -hmm. from the outward perspective, looking in, you'd be like, well, that guy doesn't have, well, 
he ain't got a thing going for him, you know? What were what what was did your um, words to God or your prayers at that time? What did they look like? It was a lot of complaining, um, to be honest. It was a lot of like, I wanted confirmation. Like, what is next? I, I, for, for me, it had been six months since God had really said anything on going to Wales. And, and, I, and I guess I expected God to walk with me a little bit closer than what he did. Would you say God's actually always close to us? He's always walking with us. It's just sometimes we feel it or hear it or see it more than others, but he's always there. Yeah. Uh, The distance between me and God is always the distance that I place between me and him. Cause like it's, that's good. God's always like, yeah, he is definitely there. He lives within me. He's the, if, if I have the Holy Spirit within me, then how close can it be? The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, so it was more you pushing God away than, than it was yeah, you feeling like God was walking away from you. Yeah. I yeah. definitely at that time was throwing a temper tantrum because yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know how else. It's, Haven't we all been there? <laughs> I just was honestly, I was just, I was fed up. I was, I was over it. I was done. Like uh, emotionally, uh, physically, I was just tired. I was like, I am just tired of being where I'm at right now and not having any other confirmation, not knowing anything else. Like just having no control over the next steps. I have a desire to go to Wales, but there's no. I'm I'm in this period of waiting and September was no longer on the table. And uh, Dave just pretty much said, what do you want to do? Do you want to continue or not? We don't know what it looks like. You have to get a visa. Whereas in before you, we didn't need to. And I said, yes, like you're still in my heart. Yeah. I want, I, I feel like God is, is pulling me in that direction. And I don't know how to do that. You know, or how that gets done and move forward i've already quit my job and so here pretty soon it's going to end so tell us like just keeping track of timeline you quit your job in what month august and then you found out that it was no longer going to be six months starting in september when did you find that out um like a week later okay quit my job okay so um so September, my job ended and I got another job. Um, let's fast forward to you know that this is now going to be moving forward. It's going to be, well, tell us what, tra- what transpired once like, that decision was made. It was around November when it was like the visa. Pro- I, I went through the visa process. Once that filled out, was just waiting on a confirmation whether it accepted or not. And when it was accepted, that's when, you know, December, December rolled around. And that was when it was, oh, you're actually going to Wales. So what were you doing besides, besides applying for a visa? What else did you have to do to prepare? Save money. I was just working and saving money. And so... Well, even that, I was only working for six months. Yeah, about uh, six months. It was only that I was working at this new job. 
And halfway through, I found out that I was actually going to be able to go to Wales. And so even the process of having the conversation with my, you know, my boss that hired me to say, you know, the, the process reopened and I went through the visa process um, and that time frame changed. And so I was accepted. The visa was accepted. And so, uh, you know, I gave my two weeks notice um, type deal. And so I guess packing up and, and moving the majority of my things to my father's barn was a huge step. Um, you know, finding a place for my car to reside still with my, with my father. So the logistics behind that was just, how do you, how do you move to a different country with minimal things? And where does all your other stuff go? Think things that like you, you accumulate over time, you know, you don't even think about, I mean, I've got four different winter coats. I don't need a winter coat here in Wales. So like, well, that's debatable. <laughs> yes. So you, and you were saving money. How did you determine how much money you needed to save? I just kind of went with the flow, saved as much as I could. As yeah. And my process, my thought process was that if, if I needed any other more money, I had other assets, like I could sell my car. Um, did you do any support raising? No. No. And I think it would be helpful maybe just as we go through this conversation and talk about just for context, like the size of your, the congregation of your home church, maybe like approximate size of staff teams. Estimated, I want to say there's probably probably 12 people on, on staff. Then there's probably at least 12, at minimum 12 people that volunteer their time or more. I mean, there could be about 20 volunteers uh, that help run um, Heartland. What was he? um, there is no mission department. What about um, congregation size? Probably, I want to say 150 to 200, somewhere around there. Okay. The time frame in which the information came, it all came very quickly and you know, like no one, no one helped me with the visa process except for Liam. And I had uh, questions from time to time. And, and a lot of those were, if I had just Googled instead of asking Liam, I could have figured it out. Um, type yeah. Or the conversations that we had as well, when me, you and Ben uh, were talking through um, the, the issues that we both had. Um, and information wise, you know, a lot of that I had to get from Ben information. And so, um, I guess Good. transition from me to you, tell me, you know, what is the, the steps that you processed that you went through and how long did it take? And what was your initial, I guess, what was your initial thought of, uh, the time frame that you'd be here? Yeah. So it's so interesting to me. I don't think you and I have ever really sat down and talked about this. So it's so interesting to hear what was happening on your end and then to know like what was happening on my end and just the different ways that we processed. So as I shared on the last episode, I knew at the end of August, so I actually went back in my calendar and like looked up some dates. It was around August 21st of last year that I, I knew that I was moving forward. I knew that um, we were going to at least try to make this happen. And I was under the same impression as you at first. So, but that was prior to this 
prior to that decision that it was going to be a six-month internship and that it was going to start around September. So I am a planner by nature and a researcher, and I like to know all of the steps. And so pretty immediately when I just started exploring this, I was researching visas and what it would take for me to get over to Wales. So Ben and I had had conversations and there there was a thought on Ben and Simon's side that maybe if we did six months, we wouldn't even need a visa because you can go under like a general tourist visa from the US to the UK for a maximum of six months without a visa. But when I researched that, it's just tourism. The tourist visa doesn't allow you to do any work, whether it's paid or unpaid. I knew that we were going to need work visas. And in the UK, in order to have work visas, you have to, or apply for a work visa, you have to have a sponsoring organization. And Hope Church at that point was not set up to be a sponsoring organization. So this was the point where I thought, closed door, we're, we can't do this. It's not going to happen. I had reached out to my church. So for context, because you provided it, Isaac. So I come from a church at home that is quite large. (laughs) Our average weekly attendance to services is about 13,000 people. We have six locations. I'm going to get that wrong. Six campuses, I think, and one prison, no, two prison campuses. In addition to that, our staff team is, I want to say like almost 200 people. It's at least 150. Don't quote me on that though, but a large staff team. We have a missions department that consists of four full-time staff and then a bunch of serve staff. So like There's a lot of like processes in place. And so I reached out to, um, so my my friend Jesse Stallnaker is in the global missions department and she had been my team leader on my short-term trip to Wales and um, she and I had stayed in contact. So I was in contact with her kind of this this whole way, um, just keeping her up to date on what was going on. And I communicated with her that about the visa stuff and said, you know, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. I don't know that they have the resources to become a sponsoring organization. And then she put me in contact. There was a church planter that um, we partner with in Scotland who had had a similar situation. So she and Pastor Adam Flint helped me get in contact with him. And he communicated basically, you know, what I had assumed based on my online research was that to not come over on a six-month visa, that upon landing, they would send me back home if I did that, if they found out that I was doing an internship. And then he, he kind of said, you know, how they had gone about being able to sponsor interns. So communicated that with Ben and Simon. And at that point, it was just a matter of you know, Ben and Simon completing on the necessary paperwork to become a sponsoring organization and to get that approved by the UK government. So at that point, it was still up in the air. I didn't know if it was going to happen. As soon as I made that decision on at our after a call on like the 21st of August, I told my boss about this. 
And at that point, I knew that the start date was not going to be September. I didn't know when it was going to be, but I knew we were looking, Ben and Simon and I had, had chatted about a January ish start date. So like, and so I told my boss where I was working that I was going to be pursuing this. And I told him, you know, I just want to give you a heads up and told him that it would be around January and that I would want to leave my job like a month before I left so that I had a solid month to just prepare to like see people and Mm -hmm. um, just shift. Like I had come from a long corporate career and I wanted like a solid amount of time to decompress. My boss knew for a while, like we had had discussions about like where we wanted my career to go. And I had been open with him about, you know, projects that I enjoyed and projects I didn't enjoy and, and my struggle with knowing what it is I was supposed to do. So he's wonderful. He was aware of that. So yeah, it was a waiting game <laughs> for her visa paperwork. And in the meantime, though, I was sharing with people because there was... There was just something in me, like even though it was a waiting game on visas, I just felt like it was going to happen. There was a lot of me that didn't want it to happen, but I was excited. I was excited about the potential to do work that I really feel passionate about and that I really love. I was just hoping that that work would be in Jacksonville and pay me. <laughs> so it's always nice. Yeah, so mixed feelings there, but I had uh, I had started telling people I was open about it, and and just some some I had started the ball rolling. So I met with our I'm going to get titles wrong here, but Ben Annis, who's the director of long ter- director of Mich- global missions. Sorry, Ben, if you're listening, <laughs> at eleven twenty two, and met with him and um, Callie in that office and. Here's like a big difference in our churches. There are very clear processes in place for long-term missionaries. It's generally a one to two year process of preparation because there are classes you take. There's, you know, there's counseling, there's all of these things. And at my church, long-term missions is defined as two years or more. So you commit to, to being in your, on the field for a minimum of two years. Yay. Well, I, I'm not an official long-term missionary that's sent and commissioned by my church, but I still met with all the people that I would need to meet with to get approval and support. So it was the missions team at my church talking to my campus pastor and my associate campus pastor, like I talked to all those folks and because I wanted to make sure that nobody was raising red flags or saying like, hey, I don't think you're ready for this. I still wanted to go about things in a way that honored my church. So um, I was having those meetings all along the way. And um, even though I wasn't like a, a technically a long-term missionary, they were still offering help in any way that I needed. But this was new territory, I think, for them as well. Just not, almost like not really knowing what to do with me. (laughs) But I had a good, my good um, friend who's probably listening right now, um, Alexis was going through the same 
process because she was preparing to go to Costa Rica for a year um, starting in February of 2020. So we were sort of on the same track at the same time. So we were supporting each other. And because I wasn't a long-term missionary by my church's definition, it means that I, I wouldn't get financial support from them. And I wouldn't, there's some other things that just come along with that, like a dedicated care team that checks in with you regularly, um, like a formal commissioning and send off just wouldn't happen. So I knew that uh, the, the fundraising or support raising side of it was going to be on me. So that meant both finances and that care and prayer support was something that I had to seek out for myself. So I wrote a support letter and it just was explaining what I was doing. Sort of, it it was a two-page letter, the process of me coming to this decision, and I had done some budgeting. So Lizzie helped me a ton with budgeting. I had met her when I was in Wales in 2019. And so I reached out to her and I was just like, Hey, what do things cost over there? Like she's also a single woman. And so I wanted to find someone else that was a single woman to go like, what does your budget look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so she helped me a ton with that. So it was budgeting for what my expenses would be in Wales and then also budgeting for what expenses I would still have here at home. Um, So I came up with a number that I knew I would need to raise and I included that in the letter and said, you know, here's the total I'm looking to raise. I made it very clear, like it wasn't just me. I think it's important in support letters to not just go like, Hey, I want some money from you. Here's why. (laughs) Like it's inviting people along on the journey with you. So it's explaining, here's what I'm doing. Here's why. Here's how I felt God calling me to this. And I want you to be a part of it because you may not be in a life circumstance that allows you to go on long-term mission. You may have something preventing you from that, but here's how you can partner with me and be on mission in Wales without physically being there. And so that's sort of how I went about it because that's really where my heart is in it. And just said like, Hey, I know that like the financial support isn't is it possible for everyone? I also really need prayer. I need some prayer warriors that are going to going to, you know, pray for me along on this. And so I would love it if you'd commit to that. So that's sort of what the structure of the letter was. By the grace of God, I raised all of the money that I needed really quickly. Like people were incredibly generous. And and I sent this letter to family. I sent it to friends. So I did that. Um, I started selling stuff. So I started an Instagram page that was just like a shop my stuff. And I started going through my clothes, my belongings, my home stuff, selling it to my friends. So I was raising money that way. And then I also did a fundraiser. I'm a yoga teacher and I um, had been teaching in Jacksonville for nearly four years. And so um, I had a network of teacher friends and students. And so I put on a fundraiser there, just a donation-based class and raised the money that way. So yeah, I was really, really blessed in that um, the finances came together rather easily for me and I was fully funded pretty quickly. What else? The visa. (laughs) So I think, yeah, it was somewhere around mid-October that I found out that 
Hope Church had gotten their sponsoring organization license. And then pretty immediately, because I had already researched everything I was going to have to do, I had my checklist printed out. I had all the documents I needed. So, because I wanted to be ready to go. Like, as soon as Hope Church got the green light, I wanted to be ready to go to get my application and to like get this ball rolling. And so I did that pretty immediately. There were some some different steps involved there. It's an online application for the UK. You've got to have some supporting documentation. It's different for every visa. Um, so I won't go and bore you with the details there. Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. I remember yeah. And you ha- I had to go to an appointment at um, the Department of Homeland Security, like the, uh, the immigration office, and you get your photo taken and um, fingerprinted and all mm-hmm. of that. So then it was a waiting game. And I heard back and, and after about two or three weeks and was told that my application was denied because I didn't have sufficient funds. So part of what you had to submit was bank statements that show you have a certain amount of money in your account for a certain amount of time. And they had misread my bank statements and denied me. So I then had to go through an appeals process. (laughs) Yes. So it was just like an error. And I... Like the same day I submitted my appeal because I was like, oh, no. Oh, heck no. Because <laughs> I knew I had the funds. But yeah, so I had to go through this appeals process. I found out my appeal was, I won my appeal. And then my passport was lost by UPS. <laughs> and so it's like, yes, I won my appeal. But then I found out that like my passport was lost in UPS land. And this was the first week of December. So I had, I was slated to quit my job that Friday of the first week in December. And I think I found this out on a Wednesday. So I'm like wrapping up work. Like (laughs) they had already hired my replacement. I was training her and now they've lost my passport. And I spent like a full day on the phone that God was so in that, like miraculously Someone at an office in Washington, D.C. got my passport and FedExed it to me that, that night. Like, God was so in it. But when I found out that I lost my passport, that was like the one point along the journey where I just remember calling my mom, falling on the floor, crying, and just telling her I was done. It was like, I'm done. This is it. I'm, I can't do anymore. I can't fight it. I can't do this. <laughs> Um, Because it just had felt like it was a fight the entire way. The visa stuff and then the denial and the appeal. And it's like, and and just the legit, I mean, it's hard work. We talked about this a little bit on the last episode. It was hard work, but it was like, I could feel God in it every step of the way. I could feel even though it was hard work, like he was opening doors that were so clearly only him. And, and some of that challenge along the way, like I remember my, when my visa was denied, I had breakfast with my friend, Jesse like a couple days later. And I told her that it had gotten denied. And she was like, were you relieved? And I'm like, no, actually I wasn't relieved. I was upset. And so like, God, I think was really intentional in that. To it was almost like this. Oh, I oh, I really want this now. 
And it's not just me begrudgingly going along. I mean, I still was a bit begrudging, but <laughs> so yeah, um, visa stuff all got sorted. Um, I waited until my visa was it, like, I had it in physically in my hands <laughs> till I had my passport back till my visa stamp was in my passport till I had all of that. It was in my hands. It was like solid gold. <laughs> and then, um, I booked my flights after that. So Oh, you know what we didn't talk about? This was the other thing that changed. We thought, everyone involved thought, me, you, Ben, Simon, that there were going to be three of us interns. Yeah. So that was sort of the plan from the beginning. And we were all going to live together. So the church was going to rent a flat or a home and and we were going to be roommates for the year. And I had I knew at that point that uh, the two other interns they were talking about they said, they're both males. Is that going to be a problem? Are you okay living with them? And I was like, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I had a lot of apprehension around it. I'm very controlling about my home environment as well. So I like things very clean and organized. And I was like two guys in their 20s. Like I knew I was going to be the oldest and that y'all were like more mid to late 20s. And I was like, oh gosh, I cannot do this. I was like, as long as we just like set strict and good guidelines. Yeah, it would have been a challenge to live with you and him. But I don't think that it wouldn't have been something if we would have just made like a always dressed at all times, you know, you know, I remember I did, I did request from Ben and Simon. I said, um, it would really be ideal for me to have my own bathroom, just like boundaries and privacy and all of that. So that was my one thing, but there, there was part of me that was excited about it. Um, But that changed pretty late in the game. Like, I feel like it was December. Yeah. But when we, I remember Ben telling me that they had discovered that there were some sort of laws that would have made it really hard for them to rent a place for us. I don't remember the details, but that they had scrapped that idea and we were each going to be living with a host family instead which I, I was excited about. I was like, oh, it'll be nice to live with a family because they'll know the area. They'll know where things are and how things work and all of that. So our next curveball, and this occurred a few days before we were flying to Wales, we found out that the third intern was no longer going to be joining us. Mm. So that was really late in the game. And I don't know if that impacted you at all, but that felt like, oh my gosh, should I I be, should I be rethinking this? Should I be reconsidering this? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? What am I doing? It didn't last long. Thank goodness. But the the only thing I thought was like, I'm so glad that um, they decided to put us in host families because just us living together alone would have been like really challenging. And so I, I was like, when they said he was when he wasn't coming, I was just like, well, thank goodness they weren't putting us in a house together. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I was like, wow, that really all worked out. But yeah, like even when we thought everything was set and I had this, I just had this picture in my mind of what the year was going to be like, like 
three interns all living together and that even once visa stuff was settled, that stuff still changed. But let's move on. So lost in translation. Uh, <clears throat> we thought we'd we'd chat one of the most controversial topics that has come up in my time um, over in Wales. I feel very passionately about this. How do you feel about it, Isaac? I'm pretty, yeah. I mean, I like my, yeah, very passionate. So we're talking about the beloved, the classic, the diet staple, PB&J, which for those of you who may not know, it stands for peanut butter and jelly. And for our friends in the UK, uh, it's actually it's it would be jam. So jelly in the UK is actually Jello. So we're not talking about a peanut butter and Jello sandwich because nasty. Uh, we're talking about a peanut butter and jam sandwich. And I grew up on this. I mean, taking it to lunch or taking it for lunch to school every day. Um, it's a comfort food for me. I feel very passionately about the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, Isaac. What are your thoughts? I was actually thinking about this um, a couple of days ago. Um, I was thinking of like ants on a log, um, peanut yes. butter, saltine crackers, just things like that. So snacky. Apples and peanut butter. Saltine crack. Yeah. Apples and peanut butter. Um, Oreos but, um, and peanut butter. Oh, yes. Ever since the parent trap. Did you learn that on the parent trap? Put your Oreos in the freezer and exactly where it came from. Yeah. Peanut butter on those Oreos. It's delicious. But yes. have you have you found that our, our friends in the UK uh, don't necessarily feel as passionately about peanut butter as we Americans do? We love our family, um, but not every one of our family members <laughs> agree. And we love you, Welsh friends, but you are oh, Christ. Yeah. You're missing out. Jesus still loves you, but uh, yes, it's it's definitely not a uh, uh, a Welsh thing um, as much. But there is those who who love, you know, like peanut butter cups. Absolutely yeah. delicious. Um, delicious. But I just, I had no idea that it was like, so, you know, the P, the PB&J was not really a thing over there, mm, not a thing at all. And I love it. So anyway, little but bit. if you, if you want to debate us on, on the topic of peanut butter, come at us. We're ready. Basically, if peanut butter can be put on it, <laughs> it may make it better. They literally, I would say in, in like nine out of 10 cases, that's true. They have um, back home. There's a, a burger joint called Bravas in Fort Wayne that actually has a PB and J um, burger that they make. Oh, no, I, mm, that crosses the line for me. Hamburger. It's delicious and it's it's revolutionary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't go that far. Mm. Um, well, on that note. Let's uh let's move on to our last segment. What we learned this week. Isaac, what did you learn? There I was going down this mountain fairly fast and it was like hilly. And so there and and so I was going really fast and I just got more confident as I was going down this mountain, as I was doing the hill like it was like already laughing because I know where this is going. <laughs> so here I am going down this mountain. Um on this trail and the first dip 
Um, I didn't go, I, you know, I had my brakes on, I wasn't going that fast and maybe 10 miles an hour. And then I went down the second dip and I, and I didn't hit any, any, um, any big rocks. I didn't hit anything crazy. And so I got a little bit more comfortable and, um, went down the next bump and lightened off the brakes. And so I'm getting towards the bottom of this mountain and I just like not break at all. And so now I'm just barreling down this mountain. Uh, going going fairly quick and um, you know how like you can see those things on the ground pass you by pass you by and you're all good you're like you're having really fun and then there it is there's this big dirt mound um, that I couldn't avoid I couldn't get out of the way and um, and it stopped my bike and I was going really fast so I gravity you know, like that song from John Mayer has taken a hold, has gotten a hold of me. And I went flying and I held on to the bike. So the bike went with me um, into the air. And um, it was a split second where I landed on, the, I, I actually landed on my, uh, my back and I rotated and um, my leg had perfectly landed a u-shape you could say into the ground and my leg fit perfectly into that and so the bike had landed should have landed on my leg the saddles the plastic pieces on the on the saddle bag and the back completely shattered and i broke because it landed on this on the on the saddle bag and broke the clips and everything and it just saved my leg and i was just giggling because I, I even smashed my head, but I was wearing my my helmet, um, and I didn't feel any pain. And so, what I learned was um, on my way home, I, I had realized that I had cracked my back, that uh, that whole altercation of flipping through the air, and so I no longer have pain. <laughs> Where I have was like tension, I was like, man, I really need to go see the chiropractor and get cracked and pulled and loosened up and here, here it goes flying through the air which should have broken something ended up loosening my my back so what did i learn um to not get too comfortable with going down hills still use my brakes even if i'm having fun so what did nice. you um, what did you learn what was one thing that you learned this week so mine also has to do with exercise uh i've been running since I've been home and I learned that it's a really unwise choice to uh, run at noon in Florida mm. at this time of year. You know, you'd think it's spring. You could do that. I, yeah. I had checked the weather. It For was, the viewers, what's the temperature like? Like what is so the this day it was, it was like 85 degrees outside. And I was like, you know, that's not bad. I mean, in Florida in the summer, we're used to like 90 plus, like 95, 92 to 95 is like where we live, you know, in, in the summer months. And so I thought 85, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, it was not fine. <laughs> it was not fine at all. And, and I had a goal. I wanted to run three miles. 
And God forbid I stop and not run that three miles. I mean, this is just like who I am as a person. I'm like, no, I am finishing this three miles. At this point, I had like maybe a half a mile left. And I'm like, that you can do that. I'm like pumping myself up. And then I started it's so it's like 85. The sun is blazing. There's no shade. And yeah. And I started to get like goosebumps. And I knew somewhere in the recesses of my brain that that's a sign of heat exhaustion (laughs) when you're hot and you start to get goosebumps or like get a chill, like you probably are close to heat stroke. Uh, But I was like, still, I'm finishing this three miles, come Mm -hmm. hell or high water. And by golly, I finished that three miles and I walked in the house and I immediately laid down on the cool tile like a dog. <laughs> and I laid on that cool tile under the fan, just like starfish style. And I don't think I stopped sweating for like 30 minutes. Like the sweat just kept coming. So word to the wise, even in May in Florida, you need to keep your running to the early morning or the late evening hours. That's mm. my... PSA. So yeah, that's what we learned. And I think that's a wrap for episode five. Woo. You're not as excited as I am, Isaac. But uh, before we go, just want to say thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Contact details, as always, will be in the show notes below. Feel free to reach out to us. Find us on social media. Um, send us questions. And hey, if you're not subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on, please do that. It'll make sure that as soon as we upload, it's you're going to see it. You, can, you don't have to go searching for it. And then if you can rate and review the podcast, that's super helpful and just um, helps other people to find us and give us a, a little more credibility. So we would love it if you would do that. And we'll see you here next time. Or next- see you next week. Next week, same time. Be safe. Have fun. Bye. Bye.